In this episode of Ask Paul Kirtley, we are going to talk about how do you know when it's the right time to start teaching bushcraft in this instance, washing up with limited water when you're hiking, camping, etc. And how do you test whether your water filter is working properly? Welcome, welcome to episode 75 of Ask Paul Kirtley, where I answer your questions about wilderness bushcraft, survival skills, and outdoor life in general. And here I am again, I'm still in the north of England, enjoying this fine summer weather. Uh, feels a little bit like the jungle in some ways where I am at the moment. It's so overgrown with bracken and nettles and everything's so green and there's, there's just everything is up at the moment. And um, you may not even recognize this area. I've recorded uh, Aspore Kirtleys here in the past, often in the winter, um, but here I am in the summer and it's looking very, very different. So it's nice to be out at this time of year. Um, it's been a busy uh, few months and um, been running a lot of courses. Um, we've been up in the north uh, running our expedition canoeing skills course. Before that, uh, we had a busy May, including the Bushcraft Show. Uh, my company, Frontier Bushcraft, is one of the main sponsors of the Bushcraft Show again. And it was great to be there and see uh, a lot of you there as well. Thank you to everyone who came up and spoke to me and talked to me about the Ask Paul Kirtley podcast, talked to me about the videos, talked to me about the Paul Kirtley podcast and how much you get from it. So it's really nice to hear from people um, that all of these different uh, formats are uh, useful and in particular how much people enjoy listening to the podcast format of this and the Paul Kirtley podcast and if you don't know about the Paul Kirtley podcast I'll link to this uh, I'll link to it below the uh, the videos um, on my blog at paulkirtley.co.uk as well as on YouTube and if on YouTube I'll put the link up um, above on the screen as well um, and that's more uh, interview uh, based uh, podcasts as well as some where I'm just on my own sharing uh, different areas of knowledge and um, that is uh, more long form uh, particularly the interviews um, but there's a lot of experts who join me on those shows to share their experience and their expertise and their perspective and that rounds out a lot of people's uh, perspectives and knowledge on the core uh, bushcraft skills as well and I think a lot of people find that useful. I certainly find those conversations useful uh, to have and I'm glad you do too. So please have a look at the Paul Kirtley podcast if you've not done so far. Also while we're on the subject of the bushcraft show I recorded my main stage presentation from uh, the 2018 bushcraft show and I have posted that in a number of different places along with all the slides included but if you'd like a, a recording of the presentation a copy of the slides a link to those as well as links to lots of other resources which expand upon the different areas that I talked about in my main stage presentation please go to paulkirtley.co.uk forward slash bushcraft show 2018 bushcraft show 2018 there's no spaces just bushcraft show 2018 
and you will go to a page where you can request that information. It's all free and I will send you all of that, um, the presentation recording, the slides, as well as extra information and all the main topic areas that I talked about in terms of that presentation. And a lot of people have found that uh, extra information, expanded information, very useful. Because of course, I've only got an hour there in the, in the presentation to cover quite a lot of ground. And if you'd like to delve into different areas, that information is there as well. So go to paulcurley.co.uk forward slash forward slash forward slash bushcraft show 2018 and you will get all of that information for free from me i'll send it to you so hopefully you will do that anyway on to today's questions uh, we have some good questions and let me just get back into my notebook it's locked itself so this is from Rick via the SpeakPipe uh, facility on my blog, where you can leave a voicemail. Hi, Paul. You all right? It's uh, Rick here. Uh, enjoying watching you, reading your podcasts and what have you, mate. Doing a good job but uh, listening to them. But quick question. Sounds a bit crazy, I know. But uh, how do you know when the time's right to start teaching or to start your own business? With bushcraft being such a massive arena of uh, information, and like we've said before, there's always stuff to be learning. But I've been I've been at it for years now, and I'm pretty well rounded in uh, most of my skills. Obviously, there's always something else to learn. There's some more, etc., etc. So I'm just wondering, when is it time to stay? Right, I've probably got enough skills here. I know what I'm doing to start trying to make. Uh, make a living out of it to some extent. I work in the outdoor industry, so plenty of experience coaching and teaching, and uh, you know, with uh, water sports, canoe, kayak, climbing, mountaineering, stuff like that. But uh, bushcraft's me true love. Yeah, have you uh, any thoughts on that? Cheers, Paul. All right, so that's a, an interesting question from Rick there. Um, so he's already an outdoor instructor. But it, and his passion is bushcraft, but he's wondering, how do you know when it's the right time? Um, so specific question for Rick. I, I, I like the uh, specific, specific answer for, for Rick's question. I, I like the question because Rick's clearly got some humility. He's got some self-awareness. He's got some um, concerns that unlike say, uh, mountain guiding, climbing instruction, canoe leadership or kayak leadership or uh, paddle sport instruction, there aren't any national governing body awards in bushcraft and therefore there is no external validation, if you like, of you being at a, a level, either in terms of skill or in terms of ability to impart that skill. And those are two separate things. The ability to do something and the ability to teach that, to share that, um, to instruct that, to coach that, and those are d different things on the spectrum as well. Um, that is that is two separate areas. The ability to do something, the ability to teach something are two separate things. And that is something I'm sure that, that that you understand, Rick, because you teach other things. But for the benefit of other people, um, just because you're good at doing something doesn't necessarily mean to say that you're good at 
teaching it, teaching and instruction, uh, clear communications, uh, clear demonstration, putting structure and variety around the way that you teach things is a skill in and of itself. And it's one that doesn't get properly recognized a lot, um, particularly in the outdoor arena. Um, a lot of people do think just because they can do bow drill, they can teach it. And that isn't the case at all. Teaching is a real skill in itself, organizing courses, um, managing things in a way that keep people engaged and interested over a course of a number of days is a skill set in itself and one to be developed. Um, and so I put that in there, not so much for Rick's benefit, not so much for your benefit, Rick, but more for other people's benefit who are maybe listening to this and thinking along similar lines that maybe don't have any experience of instruction. Um, so do think of those things. There is, and I've talked about this a bit in the past. Um, in terms of answering Rick's question in particular, um, yeah, I like the fact that you're being humble about it and thinking, well, I know I'm, I'm pretty well-rounded in my skills, but how do I know when I know enough uh, to teach what I know? And I think that's probably the question to ask in the sense of, can I teach what I know? Um, because there is always more to learn and there's always more to learn um, in lots of arenas, not just in bushcraft. And so I think what you don't want to do is try and tell yourself, I have to know everything about bushcraft that's possible to know before I can teach any of it. I don't think that's the case. I think you have to be um, honest with yourself about the level at which you think you're operating in terms of skills and teach people who aspire to operate at that level or even a level that's a little bit below that. Um, you can you can teach people what you know who are a few steps behind where you are and that's perfectly valid um, and as you grow and develop you can share more things with people um, either the same people that have learned from you in the past or or new uh, students and you know it's all part of that journey you know what you could share um, when you were 19 in terms of climbing or kayaking is probably less than what you can share now uh, being older and it's the same with bushcraft if you're continually learning and, and getting more experience and consolidating and reflecting on what you've learned then you will inevitably change what you teach change the emphasis and the quality will improve and um, that's going to happen in any arena so um, doesn't mean to say that people can't benefit from what you already know but equally you will know more in 20 years time but it doesn't mean to say that you have to wait 20 years before you can teach because we could have the same argument again in, in 20 years time so i think you have to be honest with yourself about what you know well enough to share with other people and then that's what you share with other people um, and then in 20 years time that that may be a different set of, of, of a knowledge a broader set of knowledge and skill and you're happy to share that broader set of knowledge and skill as you grow as you develop and there's nothing wrong with that at all there will be people out there who will benefit from what you know um, so that that's what I'll say on that um, if you're feeling like you want to teach what you know you're probably ready to teach what you know but don't overstretch don't bullshit people don't um, pretend that you know things that you don't just be honest and say well actually I I, I don't know that uh, I don't know the answer to that but I'll find out for you you know etc you know those things so I think in general that would be my uh, advice um, also in terms of just a slightly different emphasis on it in terms of um, 
making a living from it, um, that's a little bit harder. And I know you said part of your living, so it sounds to me like you'd be doing other instruction, maybe freelance in the mountains, on the water, etc. And yeah, I mean, bushcraft c can be an extra string to your bow, but it's hard um, with any outdoor activity instruction uh, to make ends meet. Um, often for a lot of people and bushcraft is quite a crowded area um, the barriers to entry um, are quite low because as I say there's no national governing body awards anybody can call himself a bushcraft instructor next week and set up teaching um, something uh, doesn't mean to say it's necessarily very good quality but anybody can do that um, whether or not they'll get insurance of any quality is a different matter um, and that's something that people should maybe look into when they're choosing a bushcraft provider have they got half decent insurance um, but generally it's easy to enter that market which means that the competition at the low end is quite intense um, there's often um, not a lot of pricing discipline there you know a lot of people are amateurs they're part-timers they do something else as they're living um, and they might be just teaching some bushcraft on a weekend they might be a scout leader who gets no payment for what they do in the scouts and they have a normal office job or a factory job during the week and then they're also teaching a bit of bushcraft uh, stuff that they share with the scouts and maybe they're uh, sharing it um, on a more commercial basis as well um, no comments on the quality of that but the point is that a lot of those people who don't depend upon the um, income that they might gain from those courses tend to underprice because they're happy to be doing it and the problem that causes for people who want to operate at a higher level in terms of not just teaching the basics but teaching other things that are maybe a bit more specialist is that the bottom end the entry level of the market is 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 the pricing is compressed and um, that means it's quite difficult for people who want to offer more sophisticated courses more in-depth um, learning to earn a living a part of their living from the lower that from the basic stuff that's often set at a lower price because of the competition from people who don't really care what they're charging so i would just um i would just caution about kind of jumping headlong into the bushcraft world in in the sense that if you jump in and you're offering basic courses with basic skills you'll find that there's a lot of competition there and there's quite a lot of price competition as well um, even on a local level now you'll probably find that there are other people offering similar things so you have to think about a way of differentiating yourself or a, a way of uh, of marketing so, somewhat more cleverly than than other people um, otherwise you're just going to be uh, subsumed into the into the noise there um, so there's a there's a I would wholeheartedly encourage you to go for it if and spend some time and effort on teaching people bushcraft if that's your passion because that enthusiasm will come across um, but equally go into it with your eyes open that it's it's easy to get into um, there's a lot of competition there's a lot of price competition particularly at the basic end and um, that shouldn't be a surprise to you when you when you jump into that
All right, here's a question via email from Mike in the US. And his question is around washing up. And he writes, Hi Paul, your YouTube videos are among my favorites and I particularly enjoy your instructional videos very much. How do you clean up for the next meal after cooking in the bush? Washing plates, bowls, pots, etc. if you are not near a water source and you have a limited amount of drinking water. Thank you and cheers from Pennsylvania in the US. Kind regards, Mike. Um, so thank you, Mike. I'm glad you enjoy the vids and everything else and appreciate you letting me know. Um, to answer your question, I have to kind of backtrack a little bit. So, two things there. One is, you should try and choose your camping spots based on the resources that you need. And I know in some environments that's not always possible, but going right back to the beginning let's go back to first principles just like when you have a fire and then you think oh where do i get the water from to to make this safe and to leave no trace if you're only having that thought at the point of execution where you need the water and you're like oh i've had a fire i've got to put it out i've got to make it cold and safe and you haven't thought about where you're going to get the water from before you do that you should have so right for in terms of your planning both in terms of before you leave your home uh, you know if you've got a, a a planning room you know you've got a, a garage or wherever you you know wherever you get your maps out and and get your gear ready and and sort things out you should be looking at where you're intending to go with a view to where am I going to get water? Where is there going to be a more sheltered camping spot? Where is going to be exposed? How can I get out of there quickly if I need to? You know, what are my escape routes? When you're doing your route planning, all of those things that you're, all those questions you're asking when you're doing your route planning, you should be asking where am I going to get water? How much water am I going to be able to get in those places? How am I going to have to treat it? How am I going to purify it? Um, how much am I going to be able to carry? Um, how much am I going to have to carry between different camps in some, in some areas? Um, and then once you've got a handle on how much water is available, um, how few and far between it might be, then you can start thinking about, should I be having a fire, you know, for example, is there going to be enough water for me to make this safe where I want to camp? Or should I be thinking about taking a stove? Um, and then if you're taking a stove, and you, and you are making your water safe by boiling, do you want to be carrying that fuel or should you be using some other means of water purification so you don't need to carry as much fuel to, 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 to clean your water? So there's a lot of questions around the availability of water before you get to washing up. Um, hydration clearly is the most important one uh, personally and you need to make sure that you uh, can obtain and carry sufficient water in a way that is 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 efficient um, and you know making it safe will be a combination of boiling and a combination of filtering and maybe chemical uh, sterilization or you know any sort of number of those in different proportions um, depending on what you're doing and you need to think about which one makes most sense in terms of where you're going how much weight you can carry um, and how much water you need to carry between different water sources if you're camping in a place where the water is very limited um, then you're going to struggle even for 
as I say, putting a fire, making a fire safe. So you're going to be boiling, um, using fuel perhaps, for at least cooking using fuel. And then you need to be thinking about, okay, what am I cooking to make sure that my washing up is minimized um, so that I don't have loads of dirty pots and I've got no means of cleaning them. So again, it comes back to thinking about how much water you've got um, before you even go and then planning your meals around that. Um, if there's very, very little water for washing up, I would be even think, you know, if it's like so you know, difficult, and you and therefore you're probably going to need to be carrying more water as well you probably want to be carrying dehydrated freeze-dried foods you probably want to be just boiling water and you want to be mixing the meal in the packet and then eating it out of the packet so there's no washing up you've just boiled water in your pot then you've put the, the, the water in the meal and then there's no washing up. Maybe you have to clean your spoon slightly. That's it. So there's zero washing up. You've been totally efficient with your water. Um, and then you, you, you've got minimal weight of food because you're using freeze-dried, dehydrated food. And that means you can carry more water between your campsites. So that's the kind of way you need to be thinking about. If you've got a little bit of washing up um, water, if you've got a little bit more water, if it's not that horrendous, um, a military jet going over. Um, if you've got a bit more, then just a bit of biodegradable washing up liquid, washing up soap, a um, bit of water, that will help break the grease. Um, you can always use ash from the fire, that can help remove grease you can always use with a bit of water and you can always use a bit of sand uh, for, for scrubbing but what you don't want to be doing really I mean going back to my point before if you think water is going to be a serious issue you don't want to be cooking complicated meals that have food um, welded to pots and pans you don't want lots of grease on things because that's just going to be difficult to clear up um, something you can do if you've got a fire um, is if you take some paper towels you can wipe clean you know if you've got plates and or bowls that are a bit greasy you can you know just one sheet of um, kitchen towel like absorbent kitchen towel will wipe most of a plate off and then you can burn that and there's nothing kind of smelly or, 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 or what have you that you have to carry with you um, but then if you're in an arid area that's tinder dry you don't want to be burning bits of paper towel that are going to be carried off into the into the bush so there's lots of considerations and it sounds like I'm kind of being evasive but I'm not what I'm trying to say is if it's going to be that much of an issue it needs to be addressed right at the planning stage and simplify things so that it isn't an issue um, if you're, you've got some water to wash up then then just be uh, sparing. One of the things I notice with people is that they tend to use way too much water for washing up when they're out camping, when they're out in the bush, because when we're at home, we can just turn on a tap, you know, in the first world, most people who are watching this are in the developed world. Um, they go out into the woods, into the bush, into the, into the, into the wilderness, as part of their leisure activity, as part of their vacation, as a holidays, what they do on a weekend, they go hunting, they go canoeing, they go fishing, they go hiking, etc., etc. It's something we choose to do, and we tend to live in relatively um, 
on a global basis we tend to live in relatively nice homes we've got running water we've got flushing toilets we take water for granted and so one of the things i notice with people is that they just use lots of water where they don't need to you know you know there's a washing up bowl and there's a few plates that need to be washed up in camp and i'm talking about you know a group camp for like 10 people and when i'm running courses people will put five or six liters of water in that washing up bowl to wash you know half a dozen plates and a few mugs and a few bowls you do not need that much water yet you could do it with a tenth of that amount of water if you needed to uh, and so it, it's it's about changing your expectations as well a lot of this um, in terms of what do you actually really need to use and then uh, planning accordingly uh, in terms of not making your life overly complicated and yeah sometimes you might end up camping far from water and uh, maybe you just have to pack things up and then when you drop down you know if you're up in the mountains and you drop down to a water course maybe you need to stop there and, and boil up some water and clean things off properly uh, at lunchtime and when you're stopped that that's something but i would generally go right back to the beginning right back to the planning stage and if it's going to be a serious issue simplify and consider water more generally in terms of how much weight you're going to have to carry how much food you're going to have to carry uh, minimize the weight of that so you can carry more water and then keep the uh, culinary uh, experience as simple and without spreading food on everything as much as possible like i say simplest could be just packet dehydrated packet food done in the packet eaten out of the packet and um, there's no washing up and you've wasted virtually no water and you've minimized the weight of food you can maximize the weight of water you can carry between camps if that's necessary Testing water filters. This is a video uh, post on Instagram. So this is another example of how you can ask a question. You can make a public post on Instagram, just including the hashtag AskPaulKirtley, and that can be a video post or that can be a just a normal photo post. Uh, not a direct message though. A lot of direct message on Instagram I don't get anyway. Um, because they go into my message requests and that's something I don't look at very often frankly and then even if it is a DM and that I have received into my inbox when I search on the hashtag ask Paul Kirtley, it doesn't it doesn't show that search doesn't show up things that are in my inbox so you have to make it a public post and also spell ask Paul Kirtley correctly because otherwise I won't find it <laughs> all right let's have a look at this hi Paul uh First time question from me, um, big fan of the show. Uh, I've been using the Aqua filter, um, the Aqua Guard, sorry, uh, three in one inline filter, and uh, it claims to do about 1600 litres. Um, there's no need for a secondary uh, filtration system or, um, or anything like that. It claims to do the full shabam uh, just as it is. So, how can I test this? Um, and also, how can I test how clean and how pure the water is that's coming out of it? Thanks. So he is using, Bushcraft Monkey, <laughs> he's using the AquaGuard 3-in-1 filter. And just to reiterate the question, how can he test it? How can he know that it's 
clean and pure water that's coming out the end of it. Um, and I'm sure some of you are probably asking the same about whatever water filter you're using. Um, the short answer is you can't. Um, if you think about what you're trying to achieve with a filter is that you're, apart from the visible dirt that may be caught by um, an inlet filter that might be better filtered out by a Milbank bag or a brown bag, um, apart from that visible turbidity, that floating matter, grit, sand, decaying leaf litter, dec decaying um, organic matter that's just making, uh, it could be algae as well, but things that are making the water uh, murky that are floating around, filtering that out first clearly, but that's a coarse filter that can be done with a canvas bag. That isn't what these modern um, fine micro filters are really designed to do. They're designed to remove pathogenic organisms. They're designed to remove um, things like Giardia and Cryptosporidium, which, which are protozoa. Um, they're designed to remove bacteria. And also to the extent that viruses are attached to uh, dirt and viruses are uh, embedded, if you like, within bacteria, as they sometimes are, it's going to remove viruses as well. You don't tend to get viruses, just bits of, you know, floating around um, on their own, typically. Um, so microbiologists tell me. Um, so what they're trying to do, those filters, is remove pathogenic organisms, all of which are microscopic. You can't see them with the naked eye. Even the largest of them, things like Cryptosporidium and Giardia, the cyst forms of the, of the protozoa, you can't see with the naked eye. Um, so you can't tell by looking at that water whether or not it's clean. And there's no way of you testing whether or not there are particular pathogenic organisms in that water without you having a microscope. And you don't carry a microscope in the field. You don't have a lab in the field. So you have to trust that the filter's working properly. Um, and that goes back to then using it properly as per the instructions, using it with knowledge of what it is that you're trying to achieve overall with your water purification and your water sterilization, specifically in terms of pathogenic organisms, and also making sure that you follow best practice in terms of looking after the filter, whether it's making sure you don't drop it on hard surfaces, if it's a ceramic filter, for example, making sure it doesn't freeze and crack in the winter, making sure that you clean it out properly, making sure you store it properly so it doesn't go moldy, all of those things that you have to do with various different filters. So you need to follow the best practice in terms of looking after it. And that is, um, that is, uh, that is what I would recommend. You're probably wondering, you mentioned the 1600 liters. So I think perhaps the source of the question is the manufacturer says this filter is good for 1600 liters. How do I know whether or not it's still working, you know, I, I, without counting the litres and stopping using it at 1600. I think that's possibly where you're coming from with this question. Um, now, I am not familiar with that particular... Little bird just flew through. Um, I'm not familiar with that particular model, um, but generally closed systems will normally clog and stop working before you get to the maximum throughput. Those throughput numbers tend to be, if you're using relatively clean water, this is how much 
um, it will treat. Um, some filters are, that particularly ones that deliver chemical treatments as well, are designed to clog and stop working um, once they reach the maximum. Other filters um, have a way of checking uh, that's specific to them, and I wonder if yours does. Um, I don't know without looking at the instructions. It can be something that you could perhaps do is look at the instructions to see if there's anything there about whether or not uh, there is a specific way of testing whether the, the filter is still in a good state to be working. So for example, the classic Catadin pocket filter, which is one of the filters that I use, which is a ceramic filter. There's a ceramic cylinder that sits within that um, unit. Um, you need to clean it from time to time and they, they put a brush, um, like a sort of special brush in there that's, that's curved to clean the surface of that. But obviously that's going to remove some of the outer material from that ceramic filter over time. But then you're also given a little caliper which you test the, the width of it and once it gets to less than a certain width it means the wall thickness is too thin and you need to change the filter. But they're rated to do about 100,000 litres before you get to that stage but clearly if you scrub it too much you're going to shorten the life. So some filters have a objective way of testing whether or not they are still within the bounds that the manufacturer says this will still function properly, there is still enough filter material left to be working properly, others will clog when they get to a certain point or they're designed to stop working before they get to a certain point. I don't know the specifics of your unit and I would look into that and if there is no clear answer to that from the manufacturer's instructions you might want to get in touch with the manufacturer and ask them the question um, of how do I know when this unit has reached its the end of its useful life. Um, that's a question that you should all ask of any filter that you're using. How do I know that this is no longer working properly? And all I can say is you can't do it from looking at the water um, unless you've got a lab and a microscope, which clearly we haven't in the field. Even at home, that's something that, you know, when we get back from a trip, we're not going to be able to do. Most of us, the majority of people are not going to have a microscope at home. Um, and so we need another way. And a lot of the filters do have a way, but I don't know the specifics of yours. It may be the instructions. Um, it may be a case of having to ask the manufacturer. I know that those, those units are not particularly expensive. Um, and I have to say, I've never used one. So if anybody else knows the answer to that question that can, that can help um, specifically, how do you know if it's still working, if you're not counting up to 1600 liters, um, with that specific model, I don't know, but there's probably a way of doing it and the manufacturer will be the person that can tell you if nobody else can. Every filter is different. And that brings us to the end of Ashpore Kirtley 75. Just listening to all of these alarm calls going off. I'm wondering if there's a bird of prey around somewhere. So all of these other birds are setting off alarm calls. Or it could be me that's disrupting them, but I've been here for a little while and they weren't doing it initially. So hopefully that was useful to you. Remember to check out the Bushcraft Show. You can see him there. It might be me that he's not happy with. Um, 
Remember to check out the Bushcraft Show presentation. Go to paulkirtley.co.uk forward slash Bushcraft Show 2018, Bushcraft Show 2018, to get uh, the recording of that presentation and a copy of the slides the slide deck so you can go through the slides if you want and i will then send you a series of other resources that are useful that kind of come off the hub of that presentation like spokes on a wheel as it were that you can delve into in more depth if you would like to delve into some of those areas in more depth so thanks again for watching thank you for your interest in uh, this show Thanks for your interest in my material in general. I'm glad it's useful to you and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. But before I go, if you're watching this on YouTube, please subscribe to my channel if you like this and you want more of this type of information. Please certainly like this video if you liked it. And if you're listening to this on a audio podcast, whatever platform is your favorite podcast platform, please subscribe to this as a podcast so that the next time it's updated, it comes straight into your feed and you can listen to the next episode of Ask Paul Kirtley. And of course, keep the questions coming in. I can't do these shows without the questions. So keep the questions coming in and I'll be happy to answer them. Take care and I'll see you on the next episode of Ask Paul Kirtley. Cheers.